Welcome to Music History Monday for April 12, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Dr. Burney. We mark the death on April 12, 1814, 207 years ago today, of the English music historian and composer Charles Burney in London. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. One rarely achieves much fame or fortune as a music historian. (laughs) You can trust me on this. It's something I know about firsthand. Nevertheless, Dr. Burney, he was awarded an honorary doctor of music degree from Oxford, achieved a bit of both fame and fortune in his lifetime and immortality since. That's because he didn't just write blogs or record podcasts about music history. It's because he lived it. Lots more on this once we quickly get through his biographical preliminaries. He was born on April 7, 1726, in the market town of Shrewsbury, some 150 miles northwest of London. For our information, Shrewsbury was, as well, the hometown of Charles Darwin. The artistic gene was in the family. Bernie's father, James, was a musician, dancer, and portrait painter. Young Charles was trained on the organ, harpsichord, violin, and in composition. For three years, he was apprenticed in London with Thomas Arne, 1710 to 1778, the most important English-born composer of theater music in the 18th century. Many of us might not have heard of Arne, but we've heard his music, which famously includes Rule Britannia, Britannia Rules the Waves, and A Hunting We Will Go. For all the drudge work involved in his apprenticeship, oh, Arne worked Bernie like a galley slave. Bernie learned not just music, but he met, impressed, and befriended many of the movers and shakers on the London musical and theatrical scene. Thanks to his apprenticeship with Arne, doors opened for the young Charles Burney. In 1745, while still working with Arne in London, the 19-year-old Burney was introduced to George Frederick Handel, who hired him to play in the orchestra for two of his brand new oratorios, Hercules and Belshazzar. Thanks to Handel, more doors opened, and Burney was hired into the orchestra of the Drury Lane Theatre and Vauxhall Gardens. His apprenticeship over, the 20-something Charles Burney was a highly intelligent, well-spoken, affable, and attractive young man. He was also ambitious and upwardly mobile, and he cultivated people of wealth, power, and intellect. By 1750, the 24-year-old Burney had established himself as an organist, harpsichordist, and composer there in London. He put it this way, quote, I began to be in fashion in the city as a master, that is, as a teacher, 
and had my hands full of professional business of all kinds at both ends of the town, composition and public playing." Unquote. Among Bernie's students were two of Handel's leading singers at the time, Julia Frassi, who lived circa 1730 to circa 1774, and the castrato Gaetano Guadagni, 1728 to 1792, who made his great fame singing the role of Orpheus at the premiere of Gluck's opera Orfeo ed Eurydice in 1762. And then, for Bernie, some bad luck. In 1751, at the age of 25, he became seriously ill with some unspecified illness. It was necessary that he vacate London with its miasmic cold dust and acid-infused fog for the cleaner air of the countryside. He settled in King's Lynn on England's east coast, about 100 miles north of London, where he became the organist of St. Margaret's Church, taught music to people and children of quality, and organized and performed in concerts. Bernie spent nine years in King's Lynn, during which he got it into his head that what the English people really needed was not a chicken in every pot or high-speed broadband, but rather a comprehensive, multi-volume history of music that would address the general reader and would aim to improve English taste in music. Fully recovered from whatever had ailed him, Bernie returned to London in 1760 and would seem to have re-established himself overnight as a leading musical light of the city. He became part of an extraordinary cultural circle that included the portrait painter, Sir Joshua Reynolds, the lexicographer, Dr. Samuel Johnson, the playwright, Richard Sheridan, the actor and theatrical producer, David Garrick, the poet laureate, Thomas Wharton, and the essayist, Edmund Burke. In June of 1770, Bernie embarked on the first of his extended tours of the European continent to meet and greet major musical figures and research his projected history of music. The trip took him to France and Italy, where the many letters of introduction he received from his friends in high places opened doors to exclusive salons and to leading musicians and intellectuals. According to the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, Bernie's book about this tour, The Present State of Music in France and Italy, quote, established him as one of music history's keenest observers and most entertaining commentators, unquote. In 1772, Bernie again headed across the English Channel, this time to tour the Low Countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, and Austria and Germany. During the course of this trip, he met and interviewed such luminaries as the opera librettist Pietro Metastasio, 1698-1782, and the composers Christoph Willibald Gluck, 1714-1787, and Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, 1714-1788. This trip produced another book, not surprisingly entitled The Present State of Music in Germany, the Netherlands, and the United Provinces. In 1773, Bernie began his massive history of music, from that of the ancient Greeks 
through the present day. The first volume was published in 1776, the second in 1782, and the third and fourth volumes in 1789. I'd tell you that Bernie's painstakingly researched and meticulously written histories of ancient, medieval, Renaissance, and Baroque-era music hold up shockingly well in light of modern scholarship. Bernie's was not, as is often mistakenly stated, the first major history of music written in English. Rather, that distinction goes to Sir John Hawkins, 1719 to 1789, whose five-volume history, A General History of the Science and Practice of Music, 16 years in the writing, was published in 1776. Hawkins and Bernie were considered rivals at the time, and the relative merits of their histories has been a subject of debate since their publication. However, what is not subject to debate is Bernie's commitment to the general reader and his greater interest in and dedication to the contemporary music of his time. That's why the final 376 pages of the fourth and final volume of Bernie's history is essential reading for all of us as it constitutes an irreplaceable first-hand account of the music of his time. We today have had 242 years since the publication of Volume 4 in 1789 to forget, to forget how rich and varied was the European music scene in the 18th century, a century we today have generally reduced to six names, Antonio Vivaldi, Sebastian Bach, George Frederick Handel, Joseph Haydn, Wolfgang Mozart, and Ludwig van Beethoven. Eight names if we toss in Christoph Gluck and J.C. Bach. The great bulk of the 376 pages Bernie dedicates to the music of his time, to the 18th century, is taken up with opera, which was far and away the single most important genre of music of the time. Bernie dedicates what might appear to be an inordinate number of pages to George Frederick Handel, 1685 to 1759. In fact, this should come as no surprise. Bernie knew Handel personally, and just 30 years after his death and burial in Westminster Abbey, Handel remained the compositional darling of the English listening public, aristocracy, and royalty. The various allowances and annuities Bernie lived off of were supplied by these very same people. And while we know from private correspondence that Bernie had critical issues with Handel's music, we wouldn't know it from reading his history, which is fawning in its appraisal of Handel's music. We can handle that, if you'll excuse me. Life is never without a degree of politics. Just so, those critical of Bernie's appraisal of 18th century music assail his lack of critical application and his tendency, in Bernie's own words, quote, to praise what is worthy and to be silent about the rest, unquote. Without naming names, Bernie explained why he generally refused to dwell on what he considered unworthy, quote, disputable talents frequently remain in obscurity, 
but supreme excellence will burst through all prejudice, indifference, and opposition, and always shine with due luster in the eyes of a grateful public. Complaints of neglect are generally the croakings of inferiority." Unquote. We can handle Bernie's attitude. He was a man of his time, and our modern post-1950s notions of critical historicism were as foreign to him as an electric ice maker, which, along with opera, is the single greatest invention of the last 400 years. It's what Bernie does say that matters, and generally speaking, he nails it. For example, we know that for the most part, Johann Sebastian Bach and his music, particularly his large works, had fallen into obscurity by the 1780s. Yet Bernie correctly acclaims his greatness, even while castigating him for the complexity of his music, which was so very out of style by 1789. Quote, of the illustrious musical family of Bach, I have frequently had occasion for panegyric. The great Sebastian Bach, music director at Leipzig, is no less celebrated for his performance on the organ and compositions for that instrument than for being the father of four sons, all great musicians in different branches of the art. Kernberger, in an advertisement of his master Sebastian Bach's chants, meaning Bach's chorale harmonizations, of which he was lately editor, calls him the greatest master of harmony in any age or country. Mr. Reichert, in his magazine, still goes further and says that no composer of any nation, not even the deepest Italian, exhausted every possibility of harmony so much as Sebastian Bach, and adds, if he had been possessed of the simplicity, clearness, and feeling of Handel, he would have been the greater man." Unquote. Yeah, Bernie continues, quote, If Sebastian Bach had been fortunately employed to compose for the stage and the public of great capitals, such as Naples, Paris, or London, and for performers of the first class, he would doubtless have simplified his style and had sacrificed all unmeaning art and contrivance and, by writing in a style more popular, and generally intelligible and pleasing, would have extended his fame and been indisputably the greatest musician of this century." Unquote. Bernie reserves his greatest praise for Joseph Haydn, 1732 to 1809, which tells us that in 1789, when Haydn was still a musical functionary employed by the Esterhazy family of Hungary, he was, nevertheless, the most famous and popular of all living composers in England. Bernie begins his lengthy examination of Haydn and his music with this opening paragraph. Quote, I am now happily arrived at that part of my narrative where it is necessary to speak of Haydn, the admirable and matchless Haydn from whose productions I have received more pleasure late in my life when tired of most other music than I ever received in the most ignorant and rapturous part of my youth, when everything was new and the disposition to be pleased undiminished by criticism or satiety." Unquote. Later, 
in his section on Haydn, Bernie makes a statement that could have been written today about the challenges of new music. It's a statement made in reference to the reaction of his contemporaries to the new music of Haydn. Quote, his innumerable symphonies, quartets, and other instrumental pieces, which are so original and so difficult, have the advantage of being rehearsed and performed at Esterhaza under his own direction. Ideas so new and varied were not so universally admired in Germany as at present. Indeed, his compositions are in general so new to the player and hearer that they are equally unable at first to keep up with his inspiration. But it may be laid down as an axiom in music that whatever is easy is old and what the hand, eye, and ear are accustomed to. And on the contrary, what is new is of course difficult, and not only scholars but professors, meaning performers, have it to learn. The first exclamation of an embarrassed performer and a bewildered hearer is that the music is very odd, or at least comical. But the queerness and comicality cease when, by frequent repetition, the performer and hearer are at their ease." Unquote. And there we have it. All music was once new music, and by its very nature new music, including works we consider chestnuts here today, challenged and sometimes even baffled their contemporary audiences, even music by Haydn. Of equal fascination in Bernie's history are those composers whom he hardly mentions at all. For example, we read today that the music of Antonio Vivaldi, 1678-1741, fell into almost total obscurity after his death in Vienna on July 28, 1741, at the age of 63. Bernie's history backs up that statement by the proverbial 110%. Vivaldi's name appears but once in the entire history, in a chapter entitled, Progress of the Musical Drama at Venice During the Present Century. Bernie singles out the operatic work of such Venetian composers as Mark Antonio Ziani, Carlo Polarolo, Antonio Polarolo, Abate Pignata, Bernardo Bergognoni, Giuseppe Benvenuto, Tommaso Albinoni, Antonio Caldara, Antonio Lotti, Francesco Gasparini, Alessandro Scarlatti, Floriano Resti, Domenico Alberti, Giacomo Rampini, Giuseppe Orlandisi, Ferdinando Bertonio, Luc Antonio Pridieri, Baldassare Galuppi, Gimignano Giacomelli, and still others. Here then is the totality of Bernie's discussion of Vivaldi. Quote, the next new master who distinguished himself at Venice as a dramatic composer was Don Antonio Vivaldi, who in 1714 set Orlando Finto Pazzo, and between that period and 1728 produced 14 operas for the same city, in the performance of which he generally led the band." Unquote. That's it. Vivaldi composed 46 operas. Bernie only knew of 15 of them, and there's no mention whatsoever of Vivaldi's 
500 plus concerti, on which his fame today is based. Bernie's mention of Mozart is likewise telling for its brevity. After rather lengthy expositions on the lives and music of such utterly forgotten composers as the Abbe Sterkel, Professor Eschenberg of Brunswick, Leopold Kozeluk, Ernst Wilhelm Wolf, and Charles Henry Grand, he refers to this Grand as, quote, the idol of the Berlin school, unquote. Here is the totality of Bernie's description of Mozart and his music. Quote, Mozart, who astonished all Europe by his premature talents during infancy, is now no less the wonder of the musical world for his fertility and knowledge as a composer. Unquote. A throwaway line, really. One wonders if Bernie had ever heard even a single work by Mozart. Certainly, he mentions not a single one. What this tells us is that in his maturity, Mozart's music was heard hardly at all in England. Neither was it heard nor likely discussed when Bernie visited Austria and Germany in 1772, when Mozart was but 16 years old. What little Bernie did know about Mozart in 1789 was still rooted in Mozart's childhood and the grand European tour he and his family undertook in 1762 and 1763, when Mozart was six and seven years old. Once again, so much for the twaddle that Mozart's music was the popular music of his time. As for Beethoven, he wasn't even a blip on Bernie's radar, being in his 19th year when volume four of Bernie's history was published. That's okay, we've got enough books on Beethoven. What the fourth volume of Charles Bernie's history does is walk us through a rich and living 18th century musical landscape in a manner unique. What that we had more such first-hand sources. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.